we cannot do this job of parenting unless we are restored ourselves. And it is not indulgent to take an hour out of your working day and your parenting day to do something else, to have a bath, to give yourself, as I've recently learned how to do from YouTube, a face massage. Welcome back to the Leaders with Babies podcast. I'm Farina Hefti, and as you know, I'm the CEO and founder of the Social Enterprise Leaders Plus. With this podcast and our award-winning Leaders Plus Fellowship Programme, I want to give you access to inspiration and practical support so you can continue to progress your career whilst enjoying your young children, as I feel extremely passionate about the fact that none of us should have to choose between senior careers and ambitious career dreams and loving our children and enjoying our children if you're interested just to let you know applications are open at the moment to the leaders plus fellowship so if you want to take the first step to join a network of like-minded ambitious parents who love their children from all sectors then you can go to leadersplus.org.uk forward slash fellowship the deadline is 15th october You'll get a senior leader mentor, access to thought leadership about what works for parents and careers, and space to think in a structured environment. If you have any questions, you can schedule a call via our website or also join any upcoming Q&A sessions with previous fellows. So today's conversation is with Rebecca Seal. She is a writer, a TV presenter and author of the book Solo, How to Work Alone and Not Lose Your Mind. Rebecca and I chat about how to set boundaries when working from home, why working long hours actually damages your productivity, how to lead a team remotely, and so much more. On the day where we recorded this conversation, my daughter was home unwell, so she's joining halfway through, and if you hear some heavy breathing, that's because she's sitting on my lap and breathing into the microphone, other than that being extremely quiet and very well behaved. Enjoy today's conversation. Very warm welcome, Rebecca, to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Why don't we start with you introducing yourself, what you do for a job and who is in your family? I'm a writer and occasional TV presenter. I'm the author of a book called Solo, How to Work Alone and Not Lose Your Mind. I have been a freelance writer for 11 years and I have two children, Isla, who is five, and Coralie, who is three, and a husband, Steve, (laughs) who's a photographer. Excellent. I have to say, I've just started reading your book yesterday and I really, really enjoy it. I just love, I'm, I'm, I mentioned earlier, I, I really like stuff that is evidence-informed and there's so much really digestible basis of research and then also lots of case studies. And it just, to me, it's very, yeah, it's very practical and I'll definitely, um, I'll see myself using quite a few of the things that you put in there. Oh, great. Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, but tell me, you have young children and I presume you, did, you didn't have childcare either like most of us during lockdown. Why on earth did you write a book now? What made you come up with the idea? Why did you write a book about working from home by yourself? <laughs> so the book itself, the idea is actually six years old. I was working by myself before I had kids and I was miserable. I was completely overwhelmed, working horribly long hours, technically making more money than I've ever made before or since. 
and just finding it horrible and completely baffled as to why I was so unhappy. And so I went looking for a book because that's kind of how I often try and solve problems for myself initially. And I couldn't find anything that seemed to be a guide to my situation which was, you know, pretty self-directed and a lot of quite terrifying autonomy. (laughs) You know, everyone thinks that independent working is, you know, all about spending time in the garden when you want to, but actually it can often go in completely the opposite direction too, or in fact more often in the opposite direction. So yeah, so I started looking for that book and I couldn't find it and was inspired therefore to try and create one. I think of the book as a toolbox for other people in a similar situation. I want to give loads of options for different ways that you might get yourself out of whatever difficult situation you may find yourself in. However, I was also having IVF at the time, (laughs) six years ago, and then very happily had my first child as a result of that. And that is not conducive to writing a big scientific long form book. So it waited until 2019 when I got a book deal. So last summer I started writing the book And I finished writing it in lockdown, but I didn't start it in lockdown. I didn't start it this year, thankfully. (laughs) Uh, So writing the end of it in lockdown was a surreal and I hope never to be repeated experience. But it did kind of, I mean, naturally it informed what I wrote about as well. And yeah, I had no childcare or support from outside the family at all during that time. I can imagine that being very tough. And I hear publishers have very tight deadlines, regardless of what's happening in the world, and uh, will have been very keen for you to get it out on time, I can imagine. Yeah, well, also, I wanted to get it out because the longer that the lockdown went on, and the more that people were working from home, the more I realised that the audience for this was potentially enormous, and that it was something that could have real value for a lot of people. So I was pushing myself. And in fact, I pushed to get it published sooner. It was meant to be coming out next year. And in the end, we managed to get it out this September. So that's quite a feat by my publishing house. So I'm very grateful for that. But I was kind of pushing as much to publish as they were. Yeah, and you had a bit of a head start in a way compared to all of us because you had done research about what good working from home looks like. What's the thing that you have done most differently compared to your friends or perhaps people like me who just were thrown into, oh, I don't have childcare and I still have a job. So how do I do this? Is, is there anything that you've done differently because you've done all this research beforehand? I think we were already, Steve and I, I think we were already quite set up for how we eventually made it work. And I will say that it came at quite an enormous price for both of us. So I'm I'm not saying that we nailed it. And I, I also think that the thing about 2020 is it's impossible to nail it. And we should lower our expectations of ourselves and our partners and our colleagues and our teams as much as we possibly can to be as kind to ourselves and everyone around us as is achievable. So one of the ways in which Steve and I manage the fact that he has a very busy and demanding job as a photographer, which is highly variable in terms of routine, and that I have loads of deadlines, which are kind of technically more flexible because I can move my work around the day, even if I can't necessarily shift my deadlines, whereas he can't, is that we allocate our time, our childcare time very specifically, and we allocate all of our jobs in the house, all of our tasks So a year ago or something, we sat down and wrote a list of all of the different tasks that had to be done. You must have done a lot of thinking about the impact of homeworking. From your perspective, what do you think the impact has been over this past few six months? 
This is more based on my experience and my friend's experience, I think, probably more than research because it's a bit too soon for there to be really huge amounts of research. I think that it's been unbelievably hard because one of the things that I always advise people to do when they work from home is to create really clear boundaries between the space in which they work and the time when they're working and create an identity for those spaces. So, you know, this is the moment when you're the working person and this is the moment when you're whatever other identities you have, whether that's parent or friend or or whatever. And by not allowing work to bleed into those other areas of your life, you generally manage to cope with work better. That has been impossible or not impossible, but incredibly hard. And I think even if you've got the knowledge and the skill set as I have, (laughs) it's still incredibly difficult to do. So I think learning those skills are kind of critical now because this is going to carry on. And I think all parents need to figure out how to boundary set and create space for themselves as humans and adults, as well as as parents and workers. I mean, I think one of the things I found most challenging was that, and this is still true to a certain extent, despite having slightly more freedom now than we did a few months back, is that for a very long time, I didn't do anything except work and parent. Work and parent, work and parent, work and parent. I had nothing else going on at all, apart from drinking wine. (laughs) And that's terrible. That's really, really bad from a recovery point of view. It doesn't have good implications from a mental health point of view. It doesn't have good implications from a long-term health point of view. Fortunately, the worst of it was a relatively short, little bracket of time I mean it felt interminable when we were in it right but it was it's done with now and we can to a certain extent get back to some kind of routine however I think if you work from home you've got to do some work to create boundaries for yourself and if you're a parent you've got to because otherwise we're all going to go mad and I mean that quite seriously so practically how do you do that then So I think it's about being quite strict with yourself and those around you. I'm a big believer in trying to make the thing that you should be doing the thing that has prime importance in that moment and actually acting on that. So when you're working, you're working. When you're not working, you're not working. And that's probably the most important one, actually, when you're not working. (laughs) Don't work. It's very hard to do in the era of smartphones, but... If you and I fall down this hole all the time. If you're trying to parent and work at the same time, you're going to do a rubbish job of both of them and it will make you feel really stressed and anxious because you've got two really separate identities competing with each other for primacy in your head. And that's something that our brains just can't handle. It's too much, you know, let alone all the stuff about how much data we take in through our smartphones and the world around us and how ill-equipped our brains are to deal with the kind of digital overload that we get if you're trying to do that and convince a small child to eat their lunch (laughs) with a smartphone in one hand while you try and navigate a meeting or some complicated emails or a contract it's going to stress you out and I mean that in the most profound sense so not doing that is helpful I also appreciate that that's incredibly difficult I saw a dad yesterday in the park and I was checking my emails while pushing a swing and he was having a very complicated phone call about some kind of um, film shoot that he was meant to be doing while carrying a two-year-old around in the sandpit and I just thought wow you and I were doing a really bad job right now of both of the things that was you know supposed to be doing And sometimes it's impossible in that moment. It was impossible. I had a deadline. I had to meet it, but I also needed to be in the park. So I get it. But the least amount of time that we can do that, the better our brains will cope. If you can create space for yourself to work in, then that's a very good 
option too. And I know that not everybody can do that. And there have been times in my life where my workspace has been my kitchen table with the children around me. It's almost unbearable, I think. And something that I've heard about people doing recently is meeting up in twos to work together away from their family, like having house swaps and things like that. So, you know, being very cautious about who you're seeing and keeping the numbers very limited and all that kind of thing. But I mean, there's really no reason why you can't do that. Meet a colleague in their home and have a, have a working day together, which gives you a kind of accountability partner as well as just a break <laughs> from being in your own home all of the time. And if you can create that space, even if it's the kitchen table, then the other really critical thing is to do something symbolic to transition out of your work time. So say, you know, hopefully our kids are in childcare and stay in school and all of that kind of thing now, fingers crossed, toes crossed, everything. But, you know, while they're in school, you can create a space that's for you to work in albeit the kitchen table or a workshop or wherever you have to be. But then at the end of that period of time, get rid of it, close the door, put a sheet over it, put it all in a box, shove it in a cupboard and close the cupboard. It's a hassle. It's an extra job. I know that. But the dividends that you will get from it from a mental health point of view of symbolically shutting and ending your working time, even if you're going to get it out again in the evening, but just don't let work look at you constantly for the whole of your day and your evening potentially as well. Do things which make it clear to your brain that this right now I'm a parent and you know then I was working now I'm a parent that stuff is really critical and it's surprisingly powerful mm-hmm. and I think the mental health word that you said there that that's absolutely critical because not being an expert but I can imagine that the risks to our mental health are much much bigger with being at home with not having that connection with other people and so having those clear boundaries is quite important but also acknowledging that it is totally okay that it's not easy and that we're missing seeing our co-workers or even just missing the commute where you do have 40 minutes all to yourself in the best case scenario. Thinking about visibility, well, that's something that seems to be coming up again and again. We do seem to have a lot of parents who tell us that they notice they're being a lot less visible when they're working from home. To an extent now, obviously, most people are working from home. But still, how do you create the visibility with potential clients, perhaps with your team? What are your thoughts on that? I personally think we've got a bit over-obsessed with visibility, actually. I mean, my shtick, if you want to put it like that, is that I want people to kind of take work away from the dead center of their lives and make it into something that they do, and then they stop doing, and then they go and do something else. And so... If we're talking about visibility in terms of being visible to your clients and co-workers, then I actually think there's nothing wrong with being invisible every now and then. (laughs) Because I think that we do too much flag waving, right? Like your job is not the most critical and important thing about you or the most interesting thing about you. There's loads of interesting and important things about you. And parenting is interesting and important. It's also boring sometimes, but you know, that's that's another conversation. You know, I get that visibility is important in terms of, you know, getting new clients and marketing yourself and all of that stuff. But I also think culturally, from a business culture point of view, we've got too obsessed with saying to people, I'm here, I'm working, look, I'm on Slack, you can see me. There's a green little bubble next to my name on a, you know, some kind of app or format or other, you know, of the many, many options that there are. Because that's performative. 
it doesn't necessarily tell us anything, or in fact, it doesn't tell us anything at all about output. Really, we should get much better at judging results rather than visibility. Personally, I think. I think actually that's one of the fundamental flaws in the way that business culture is organized right now is that we had a culture of physical presenteeism before the pandemic where we all trooped into an office and, and I did it you know I spent six years working at a newspaper uh, let me tell you I got I get so much more done now I don't work in an office like I immediately upped my productivity as soon as I got out of an office even though I wasn't performatively being present and visible anywhere because offices are full of time sucks but that's another question <laughs> I think we have to reframe it you know I think stop if you can and this is really hard to do as an individual because obviously we're all part of these much bigger cultures but I think if you can stop worrying about visibility and maybe encourage you know if you're a manager or a director could you change the culture of your organization so that it was more about results and less about performative stuff like being visible and available at all hours are you mirroring behavior for your subordinates for your juniors which is damaging right is you being available at 10 o'clock to answer their questions 10 p.m i mean is that terrible because does that suggest that the culture of the organization is an all hours culture we need to ask ourselves these questions right you know we need to think about doing the age-old thing of like sending an email saying don't read this till tomorrow which FYI, everybody will read it immediately because they're worried that it's got something in it that they should read. I think visibility is a terrible thing, actually. Well, I agree and disagree with you. So I think on one hand, I completely agree like the whole presenteeism and there is an online presenteeism now is bad. And actually, like you say, it makes you less productive. It really does. But I also have an issue and maybe I need to let it go. And I guess that comes from my background as someone who is passionate about equal career progress for men and women, for carers and other people. And I do sometimes see people who work part-time or work from home not being recognized. And maybe that's a different question. It's about how are you recognized for your work without being constantly present. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It makes perfect sense. But I think they're two sides of the same issue. Because I think that if we can change cultures so that it's more focused on output, people who work part-time would be better recognised. You wouldn't look at them and think, oh, they only work half the time. They're only half as committed or they're only half as interested or they're only half as productive because the recognition would flip onto what their output actually is. I only work four days a week, but my output's really high, probably because I only work four days a week. That's again, and the four day week is a whole other question, but I recommend it really strongly. So I think I'm not in disagreement with you. I think part-time workers and, and historically the data all shows that home workers, remote workers had to work far harder to have their achievements recognized in the office if they had office workers also in sort of com direct competition with them. So yeah, I totally agree with you. But that's part of the broader cultural issue of thinking that the working day has to be eight to 10 hours a day, and that you're really successful if you do 65 hours a week, which I think is the opposite of success. Yes, agreed. So and there's something quite interesting in your book about that. And I can't remember the exact numbers, but something along the lines of basically, the people who work less hours are have a higher impact. Well, there's two aspects to that. There's the 80-20 principle, which is that 80% of the results come from the top 20% of your effort. So that's about thinking sort of more strategically about how to use your time 
for its absolute best outcomes. And then there's also research that shows that after a certain number of hours per week, output actually goes into negative. Like that doesn't sound like it makes much sense, but a really super long week has been shown to, I mean, we're talking about 70 hours or so, has been shown to damage the output that's gone before it to the degree that it actually goes into reverse, which is quite extraordinary and worrying. (laughs) I'm really against long hours culture because of all of this data that shows that the more hours you do, the less productive you become. Yes. In principle, I agree with you hugely. But I think in practice, it's really hard. And especially when you work from home and you do feel so, by the way, I'm doing, you might hear some sniffling from my daughter, Naira, who is at home and who is now watching this conversation on Zoom. I think whatever she was watching is probably not that interesting anymore. But what could be more interesting than watching two grown-ups talking about work? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I guess the question is how, so if you have things like that going on, and you do have, you might still feel a bit guilty about working from home. You shouldn't, but you might still feel guilty. How do you limit the hours? You know, the, the, like basically, how do you limit the number of hours? Yeah, you can, you know, some people told me they feel guilty about, or they feel worried that people don't think they're doing enough. Yeah. So do you mean that you feel guilty for making, so assuming we're not in the global pandemic where everybody has to work from home, you mean guilt about making the choice to work from home to be a remote worker rather than an office worker? Yes. And then overcompensating with really long hours. Yeah. And that's a really well-known phenomenon for both men and women, interestingly, although it tends to be men who win the career premiums for doing so. Strangely and interestingly, well, not strangely, actually, it's completely predictably, but prior to the pandemic, there was research that showed that female home workers were generally considered to be liable to take on lots of household tasks and therefore be sort of split in their working day between work and home and caring, whereas male home workers are not considered to be so split and in fact the data shows that day by day they're not split they do tend to just sit down and do their work and not take on extra sort of caring responsibilities and that and women because of this idea about them women tend to pay more of a career price and men get a career premium so there is a divergence one thing that i think may well hopefully be a positive of this grim year is that all of this stuff about perceptions of home workers is up for grabs and should change because so many of us have had this experience now. So many of us are kind of enlightened about what homeworking looks like. And although a lot of the stuff about men and women and kind of the gender roles in heterosexual relationships and the difficulties with all of that, you know, that is long-term stuff that's going to take a long time to unpick completely, if ever. But there's more understanding because of what everybody's experience has been, there's much more understanding of what remote work and what homeworking is really like. And so my hope is that we're going to see something really transformative over the next few years about all of this stuff. I think homeworkers will be perceived much more clearly and much more kindly. And I think a lot of people will opt for some or all of their week to be a homeworking week precisely because of this. Mm-hmm. I think so. In your book, you write about, uh, you mentioned the concept of deep work. I think it's linked to Alex Pang's thinking. And I'm just interested. So the assumption that you're describing is that if we work deep, as in really focus on something, we're more likely 
to achieve stuff. I personally, when I work from home, which obviously I do now all the time, I notice myself getting a lot more distracted with all the small things that I need to be doing. I find it harder to work on deep stuff from home. Maybe that's just me. But uh, given I've got you as an expert here, any tips, thoughts on that? I think you're right. I think that being at home is something you sort of have to practice in order to get to a kind of deep work state. I mean, I have to say, I have to be honest and say that I'm not sure that I necessarily totally agree that working from home is an ideal situation from a deep work point of view. And again, maybe that's something to be really honest about because we need to be kind to ourselves and and not kind of have unrealistic expectations of what's achievable. One odd experience through lockdown for me was that my husband's photography studio was closed down. So I had a space in which to work, which was completely empty and, you know, didn't have any laundry in it or (laughs) snacks or anything like that. And the experience was so positive that I'm actually about to start renting an office so that I can leave the house. So, I mean, my book is as much for people, it was always designed for people who work by themselves. And although a lot of those people work from home, is as much for people who've kind of got a woodworking business or a, you know, a mechanics in a garage or or whatever. And um, I do think people like that probably do have an advantage over those of us who work from home because it is difficult. But I think, again, going back to the boundary setting stuff in terms of tips, like there's lots of things you can do so one thing that people talk about are transition rituals so a ritual which takes you from a a home place into a work frame of mind and mine which people often laugh about is wearing makeup (laughs) so when I work I generally try to make sure that I've done my face and I know that's kind of vain and slightly pointless because almost nobody sees me but for me it turns out, and I didn't really learn this until I did the book, I, did, I felt frustrated with myself that I had this kind of vanity thing of wanting to have like tidy hair and a, and a done face. But actually, it turns out that on the days that I don't do that, I find it really hard to stay in my work frame of mind. So it could be anything, though. Some people find getting dressed in a particular way is really helpful. Other people find that, you know, it's, it's basically replicating the commute effectively. So it might be that after your second cup of coffee in a particular cup, that's your moment to say, I've shifted into a work point of view. My mum, who's a long-term freelance worker, knew somebody who used to take a briefcase, leave the front door, walk around the house, come in through the back door and go upstairs and sit down and start working. You know, whatever it takes for you to create a transition which holds you in that place. But then the other thing that's really important is um, I spoke to a a really brilliant career coach called Karen Air White for this. And she talked to me through a a thing she does called the ideal week, where you basically write down your week as an entire schedule. And in that schedule, you mark out the pockets of time that are for all the things that distract you, whether that's social media or whether it's laundry or, you know, whatever it might be. And you're realistic about it. You know, I had to be realistic about the fact that I can't start work when the table downstairs is covered in dirty breakfast things. Drives me crazy. I wish someone else would do it. I can't, I can't not. And it it feels like a waste of half an hour sorting everything out downstairs. But I can't actually transition my brain into a work state of mind until I've done those things. And a lot of what the book is about really is about getting to know yourself and getting to know specifically what it is that you need and prompts for thinking and asking questions 
of yourself that will help you know what your rituals should be or what they already are. I mean, I used to just be so angry with myself that I couldn't seem to start working before 10 o'clock, like furious, you know, because my husband will wake up and literally roll out of bed and start working. He's fine. And I can't do that. I can't get anything done if I, even if I do sit down at the computer. But that's because that's just not my rhythm. That's not who I am. And I shouldn't judge myself by his abilities and standards. You know, so we just have to get to know ourselves and be forgiving of ourselves. And then after we've kind of done that work, which, you know, this stuff is slow and, and you need a bit of sort of concentration and dedication, which again, we're all short of this year. Then you think, okay, if, given that I'm that person who does work best from 10 till 8 p.m., how can I work that around the fact that I've got kids? Are there two evenings a week where I get to work later? And that ultimately is what Steve and I worked out. I love working late, right? I love it. That works really well for me. I write best then, but I can't because I've got to pick up children at five every day. Two days a week, we try and make it so that he does that for me so that I get that time back and I'm not resentful and furious. You know, it's all about that and as much as possible working together to get to know each other and being really flexible and forgiving of all of those things because we are now in these little tiny work teams of two or or, or one if, if you're a single parent, but we have to behave as though we are the CEOs of ourselves and the HR managers, as well as the office cleaner and the, <laughs> you know, all the other Especially that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But you have to kind of, you know, there's a certain amount that your business can do, your organisation can do to support you, but you also have to do some stuff yourself now. Mm. How do you make sure you feel good about what you're doing? So I'm thinking about the fact that when you're by yourself, you don't often get positive feedback. You might get any, a lovely email from your boss if you're lucky, but in real, reality, there's a, there can be a real absence of feedback and encouragement, which is something we all need. How do you deal with that? Yeah, that's a really interesting and valuable question. It's something I struggled with a lot, still struggle with to a certain extent, because freelance work is even more like that. You only know that you're any good at what you do if someone, gets, if someone asks you to do it again. <laughs> and often you just like hurl a piece of writing into the void. And then, and then someone publishes it, but they don't, <laughs> they don't tell you whether they like it or not. Yeah, it's quite a weird experience. I mean, there's a couple of things. One is time just makes you more robust to that. Time and experience just makes you more robust. But the other thing to do, I mean, this is a massive topic and there's a huge chapter about meaningful work in, in the book. But to kind of sum it up briefly, there's a number of things you can do to think about your work that kind of can give it meaning and therefore make you feel more strongly connected to it. It's hard to do, but it's sort of a responsibility we have to ourselves. So you can think about the things, the ways in which it helps other people. Adam Grant talks a lot about this, the behavioural psychologist in the US. Your work is meaningful because of the things it does for other people. And, and every single job does something of service to other people. I feel really powerfully about this particular book, even though there were times when it was incredibly hard and I didn't think I could possibly finish it because of the value that I think it has. But the rest of the time I write recipes. <laughs> that's my real, you know, that's my other job. And I still think that's valuable because I hope that it gives people pleasure and helps people to eat healthily and joyfully, even though I can do huge amounts of work without anybody else reading it for months and months and months. That's the kind of core underlying message to myself about my work. So I think we all have to find one of those for ourselves. It could just be, I don't think this is good enough, but it's the beginning of something is to say, you know, this work feeds my family. That isn't a big enough, that doesn't fill your meaningfulness bucket enough, but it's the beginning 
you shouldn't let it trap you in a job that you absolutely hate because it feeds your family if you can escape that but I think that's the beginning of a conversation you need to have with yourself about why your work matters and then I mean if you really want to get into it there's a whole thing about job crafting I won't go into it in massive detail but job crafting is a really useful tool and people can look that up or there's a bit about it in the book but it's basically about doing whatever you can to sort of carve your job into something closer to what your values might be and it's really helpful and useful and it's what I've been doing for the last decade. Mm, And that sounds incredibly valuable and I think especially when you have children your time becomes more precious and you might still be as ambitious and as passionate about your career but you're not going to want to waste your time with things that don't really matter. Yeah that's true but I also think that one really positive thing about having kids is that it forces you to do the stuff you're supposed to do in the time that you've got. I'm much more productive now that I've got children because precisely because of that thing of having to start and end my day at very precise moments rather than having a a long and plump with promise day ahead of me. I've got six hours in which to write an article. So I write that article in six hours and it happens and it's done. So while you can feel overstretched and overstressed, I think that it's really useful to kind of reframe that in your head as like, wow, look how much I get done in two hours of childcare. That's amazing. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, That's very, very true. Um, I want to think about being a leader remotely and managing a team remotely. Do you have any views of practical things someone can do who wants to lead a team of people well not seeing them and working from home yeah I do actually funnily enough I just wrote an article that was published in management today this morning <laughs> about exactly that <laughs> I didn't know this this was not prime oh. good, good anyways <laughs> so yeah if you want if anyone wants to look it up it's called five things your remote workers need you to know essentially I think that the main thing that I have decided are necessary based on lots of anonymous interviews with newly remote workers in the last few weeks is that they need a mentor so if there's any way that you can create like a buddy system or a mentoring system for your team particularly new members of the team particularly people who are younger or inexperienced incidental learning the kind of thing you overhear in offices is obviously gone up in smoke so by creating a mentoring system you can kind of undo a little bit of that damage Open office hours, like a Zoom version of of office hours is um, another really useful tool so that people have the opportunity to just drop in and ask the kind of questions they would knock on your door or lean over your shoulder to ask at any given moment of the day in an office. I was talking to an architectural firm the other day and they were saying that they felt that there was a real slowness to the work that was being generated because their younger team members didn't feel like they could ring constantly throughout the day to ask minor but but important questions. So coming up with a framework for that is really useful, but don't make it that you're all on Slack all of the time (laughs) or some other chat thing because that's like very damaging for productivity and completely derails people's concentration mental health programs you know just checking in with people making random calls to people just to say are you okay is there anything we can do are their backs hurting are they sitting on a dining chair is their computer resting on a cookbook do they have a headset have you let them have any equipment from the office do they need a webcam like what is it whatever they might need I am stunned by the number of people I know who are working for massive organizations people I've interviewed who haven't been given a laptop stand you know who have spent the last 
like six months working with their shoulders hunched and their hands in claw positions. And that is going to cost organizations so much money, so much more than a laptop stand. <laughs> because these people are going to be signed off sick in a few months with, you know, RSI or carpal tunnel or depression or whatever. So, I mean, I basically think what managers need to know is that the vast majority of people are struggling just as much as you, the manager, is. And they need compassionate support. And that can just be having someone say, are you okay? Is there, are you okay? Is there anything I can do? From what I'm hearing, I'm not sure the majority of organisations have started doing that yet. And that's partly because their capacity is very diminished by everything that's going on too. But I'm yet to hear many people say, yeah, yeah, I feel really well supported by my organisation. Absolutely. And the book is obviously full of very practical tips that people can implement. But would you, so if, if someone is listening to this and they like their job broadly, childcare is reasonably sorted, but they just want to enjoy their homework more, what, what are three practical steps they could do this week to improve how they feel about working alone from home? So there are a few things that I think will help most people. One is to make sure that their desk is by a window and that they can see a tree. <laughs> An odd piece of advice, but it turns out to be a really critical one. To be able to see nature it doesn't actually have to be a tree, but to see the fractal patterns that leaves create as they move in the wind and to be able to see just the natural environment as a whole, I'm looking at a tree right now, is it turns out incredibly important for mental health and also for our attention. There's a whole branch of thinking about this called attention restoration theory, which is really fascinating and has shown things like a tower block surrounded by trees compared to an identical tower block with no trees will have lower instances of violence and crime and generally less depression fewer mental health problems. There's a study done in America on exactly this. Suburban areas with greater levels of green spaces and trees also have lower levels of antisocial behaviour and crime. Like it is really, really important for our brains to be in and around nature and to see nature. And a lot of the time when we set up a home office, we replicate the kind of office that we had when we were in an actual office. And we don't have to do that. We can make our office lovely or our kitchen table lovely. We can surround ourselves with plants. We can have pictures on the walls that we love. We can use nice stuff. We don't have to have like black flecky binders and all of the budgety stuff that most offices have in them. You can choose your environment and make it really lovely make it quite a joyful place to be you can have a candle you could make it smell nice you know you can do you can do whatever you like you've got total freedom apart from you know obviously don't set fire to your small children if you've <laughs> so that's one thing like make the environment nice and make it one where there's some nature in it or near it that you can see make sure that you're getting enough access to daylight if you need office lighting then make sure that it's got daylight bulbs in it in the daytime and then switch to lower levels of light in the evening. If you do have to work in the evening, try and make your screen have a yellow cast on it. Most computers will do that now and use lower, softer lighting in, in your office space or your workspace. That will stop your brain being completely muddled when it comes to its circadian rhythms. And then the other thing, and I've touched on this before, is to just be really kind to yourself. Make sure you get enough recovery time from parenting and working. 
And by recovery time, I do not mean drink a whole bottle of red wine and watch Netflix. Not every time anyway. Like that is a legitimate thing to do like once a week or twice a week. But when people talk about recovery in terms of behavioral psychology, they're talking about the usual things which we all know we should do more of like exercise but you know it doesn't have to be that it just should be something which engages your body and your brain and isn't work or parenting and you know we need those things to be better at both of the other things and if we don't afford ourselves those things then the parenting and the work becomes incredibly hard and really draining and I've had some horrible moments in the recent months where I just thought wow I'm a terrible parent I don't want that for other people (laughs) yeah I think all of us had these moments but what you're saying is so true and we just need to sometimes give ourselves permission to put ourselves first and to allow ourselves to have rest whatever that rest is and even though it might not be the most productive you know Netflix and I would love wine for some people every now and then might be what they oh yeah what they want yeah. and actually just that it's okay to do something do whatever you need in yeah. that moment and to have the rest and to look after yourself as a priority yeah. And you'll probably learn the next morning on whether or not it was really restful or whether it had other consequences. But regardless, prioritizing yourself, I think, is so, so important. The phrase that always runs through my head whenever I have these conversations is put your own oxygen mask on before helping others, which I know is quite a cliched parenting thing to say. But we cannot do this job of parenting unless we are restored ourselves. It is not indulgent to take an hour out of your working day and your parenting day to do something else, to have a bath, to give yourself, as I've recently learned how to do from YouTube, a face massage. (laughs) Um, It's great. I recommend it. Um, You know, whatever it is, paint your nails or go for a run or go for a coffee with a friend or do what I did this morning. I had a pretty rough start to the day kids wise and work wise and so I just thought right no nothing good is going to happen if I sit at my desk immediately so after I got back from the fandango that was drop off this morning I went to a local cafe and sat outside in the bright but cold sunshine and had a flat white and was restored quite literally by the experience and came back to my desk and started working and behaved like a proper human but it's hard to give ourselves permission for those things but we need it we really need it Mm, very true and now we've worked this way probably for most of us about six months and we've just heard that it's likely to continue actually this is a really good time to reevaluate what works for you and what you need to change and for me now I've just been inspired to definitely I'm not going to show you now my workspace but it definitely doesn't meet your criteria let's put it that way when I when I learned all this stuff I learned it from this fantastic well two people actually there's a, a fantastic office designer called Emma Morley who's in the book and also Ingrid Fettel Lee who has an incredible Instagram account called the aesthetics of joy and I learned so much from the two of them and it was fascinating because on the one hand I'd done some of the things that they recommend like like having pictures of the sky in the room where I work, which really helps your brain if you don't get to see a window. And I'd use lots of kind of natural textures, like I have a, a lamb's wool fleece thing on the back of my chair and so on. And then, but I also looked at it and was like, oh, everything on my desk is plastic and it's like an IKEA white thing. And they literally said, don't have a white IKEA desk. <laughs> and I looked down at my white IKEA desk and thought, okay. <laughs> I need to change that. So when I move offices, I'm going to get something that's wooden so that it's a natural texture because this stuff, right, just really confuses our brains. We're not designed to be in these blank, kind of shiny, chromey, black, grey spaces. That's not what our brains are used to. And it really freaks them out when we do it to them. Lots of food for thought. Um, 
we're coming to the end of our conversation. Where can find people more about your work? Where can they find your book if they want to know more? So if you want to know more about the book, then I've got a website, howtoworkalone.com. That also has a certain amount of resources, which I'm adding to all the time, which are associated with working by yourself and support groups and networks as well, um, links to organisations that people might be interested in finding out more about or joining. You can find me on Instagram at BexSeal, B-E-X-S-C-A-L. And the book is available in all, as I heard recently, all the good bookshops and the bad one. <laughs> oh, <laughs> let's not mention any names that I can imagine. Yeah, no, no, of course not. So you can take a pick. <laughs> Excellent. This has been really, really thought provoking. I so enjoyed reading your book so far, and I can't f- wait to finish it. So thank you very much, Rebecca. It's really lovely to talk to you today. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I feel very privileged to be here and part of it. So thank you. Thank you for listening today and I hope you've enjoyed Rebecca's thoughts and insights. I certainly did. As I mentioned earlier, 15th October is the deadline to apply to the fellowship program if that's on your horizon. And if this podcast has helped you in any way or inspired you, then do please take a moment to share it with five of your friends, leave a review and most importantly, subscribe to the episodes i hope it was useful and obviously if you do write a review then five stars really to help with the visibility because the complicated algorithms do make it seem a bit more so until next time have a wonderful week and thank you for listening again mm-hmm.